How does someone disappear into thin air? How can someone go from a budding Hollywood actor to a memory? When people go missing, ushering loved ones, investigators, and a curious public into the unknown along with them, what can be grasped in their absence, if anything at all? How do those of us who are left behind find the ability and the strength to close the chapter on a person who was once part of our lives? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who has fantasized about running away and starting somewhere new with a clean slate, but knows that because I've been on TV, I would never get away with it. I once got off an elevator at a Trader Joe's in Seattle, and a woman said, What are you doing here? She'd just seen me on TV the week before, and seeing me in her local grocery store a few days later appeared to be almost too much to compute. Some random street punk on Hollywood Boulevard once called me out by my full name. A local bartender here in Rhode Island said, I've seen you before. Are you a cop over in Taunton? I wouldn't have corrected her, except that I will not stand for being confused for a cop. Or from Taunton. Shudder. JK, JK. I am by no means a celebrity, but that's beside the point. If you've been in a couple of TV shows or movies, chances are people are gonna recognize you in the least likely of places. Incidentally, I wish someone had told me that when I was a teenager acting like a buffoon on the streets of New York City in the 90s. So how could it be that a young actor with a major film credit like Varsity Blues could just bloop out of his own life seemingly into thin air? Joseph Pickler was born in 1987 and raised in Bremerton, Washington, a relatively small town outside Seattle to working-class parents. According to the official website for Bremerton, Washington, quote, a one-hour ferry ride or 30-minute fast ferry ride from downtown Seattle, Bremerton is truly a beautiful city. Guests enjoy the Kitsap Conference Center, two hotels, fine dining, coffee shops, cafes, and the Port of Bremerton Marina in the downtown Harborside area. End quote. Bremerton may have a conference center, but what it doesn't have is a good brand manager. Anyway, we all have a the moment I decided I wanted to act story. Pickler's moment came in 1991 when he was four years old watching the Oscars. If ever there was a year to be inspired by the Oscars, 1991 was it. Misery, The Godfather 3, Goodfellas, Dances with Wolves, Total Recall, Postcards from the Edge, Ghost? Are you kidding me? Two years later, Joseph was acting in local commercials, and shortly after that, he followed the path of so many young hopefuls before him to Los Angeles. He landed a few one-off guest star roles in TV shows, and then a handful of small parts in movies, including The Fan with Wesley Snipes and Robert De Niro, and Varsity Blues with future heartthrob Dawson from Dawson's Creek, a.k.a. James Vanderbeek. In 2001, when Joe was 14 years old, a local paper in his hometown called the Kitsap Sun ran a feature about the budding young star titled Young Pickler, an Old Hollywood Hand, which highlighted his split life as a ninth grader in Bremerton and a budding Hollywood star. Papers love to run stories like 
Local young star says Spotlight won't spoil them, with quotes from their parents saying things like, she still has to clean her room and do her homework, to remind us that even though they may be semi-famous, they're still just a regular kid. And if it were a three-camera sitcom, the audience would go, aww. The Kitsap Sun article talks about the Pickler family's menagerie of pets and his parents and brothers and sisters, but of course, the real star of the article is Joe. It read, quote, There's barely a clue of his show business success on the first floor of the West Bremerton house where he's lived for all of his 14 years. You'll meet a polite ninth grader in love with Final Fantasy video games and Mexican food. His parents, Kathy and John, an older sister and younger brother, and assorted pets. But go downstairs to see Joe's secret side on display. There's a row of baseball caps from movies he's been in and the places they've taken him. The most exotic location is Australia, where he starred in a made-for-video movie that will air on Fox Family Channel's 13 Days of Halloween series, end quote. There were boxes filled with candid photos on set, including shots with fellow Washington State native Julia Sweeney, whom he'd starred with in Beethoven's Third. Joseph told the Kitsap Sun that a lot of his time in between scenes of the Fox Family TV movie he made with Christopher Lloyd, When Good Ghouls Go Bad, was spent in his trailer doing his homework. Joe said he wanted to branch out into more serious roles, which was why he'd abandoned his former goal of having his own TV series. This was in the 90s, remember, when TV was a very different thing. Being on a TV show back then was seen as kind of a second-class acting gig. Not like today, where any major movie star would be thrilled to land a TV gig. Hollywood is a weird place. Plus, he was discerning about what kind of roles he would take. He told The Sun he'd said no to gigs with sex and drugs. Whether he meant for his character specifically or at all, I don't know. His mother, Kathy, said they'd turn down roles... If it's senseless things without morals or something bad for just entertainment and for people to get their jollies from, Joe gets the final no. I mean, there is a place in entertainment just to get your jollies from, but I appreciate Joe and his family for having standards. My parents said no to TV gigs for me for the most part. As for commercials, my mom had taken me to an audition for one for Huggies Diapers when I was six months old, and apparently I screamed my head off so much at the callback, I didn't get the gig. Honestly, it was a sign of things to come. When it comes to commercials, I have never been able to drop the please don't actually buy this product, you don't need it air about me. I had a voiceover campaign for a brand of contact lenses for a minute in the 2000s, and I had to say something about a contest to win tickets for some garbage pop star, and when I did the first few takes, the director was like, um, can you at least pretend that you don't hate this pop star? And once, when I was doing an ad for Wendy's, of all awful nonsense, and we finished filming at noon, and I expressed joy in being released from work to go enjoy a beautiful day, someone from Wendy's on set said, I guess you really don't want to be here. 
I swear it was all I could do to not grab them and scream, This is just a job, pal. Don't get it twisted. I do not like your product. And the character I play in this shitty commercial is a naggy, whiny girlfriend who won't just let her stupid, lazy boyfriend sit on the couch and eat fast food hamburgers. So no, I don't want to be here peddling your poison. I want to go eat an ice cream cone and sit outside in the sunshine. Anyway... Potato, potato. Every actor has their standards, and Joe asserted his from a young age. Despite having already made movies with the likes of Christopher Lloyd, Robert De Niro, Jude Law, and Jennifer Tilly, Joe told The Sun he was ready to branch out and make some serious films because, as he put it, goofy roles, like Sean Penn's performance in I Am Sam, don't win Oscars. His Hollywood co-stars would later say of Joe that he was a consummate professional. James Vanderbeek told People magazine that Joe was a really good actor whose talent inspired him. Jesse Plemons, who I will never not associate with Breaking Bad, said of Joe, quote, He knew the names of everyone on the crew, took time to get to know them, and he was everyone's friend, end quote. Joe's director for the Beethoven movies, David Mickey Evans, whose specialty is directing kids, told E! Online that Joe was, quote, a solid little young man. He wasn't what you'd conceive of the typical child actor. He was just a normal kid, a normal little boy. I don't recall a single moment where he wasn't really happy to be there, end quote. From the trailer of Children on Their Birthdays, based on a novel by Truman Capote, which, incidentally, when the trailer voiceover guy said, From Truman Capote, acclaimed author of some of America's most beloved stories, all I could think about was the four dead members of the Clutter family from his book In Cold Blood. Anyway, from the trailer of that movie, Joe does look like a really natural actor, not forced or cutesy. After Children on Their Birthdays wrapped, Joe and his mom decided to take a break from Hollywood so Joe could go back to his full-time life and do high school like a regular kid. It wasn't a decision Joe was happy to make, but the high school he was attending part-time in L.A. wouldn't allow him to continue as a part-time student. So his choice was either stay in L.A. full-time, away from his family, or move home. Despite not being thrilled about the permanent move home, Joe slipped back into regular kid life pretty easily. He made a mock TV show with some friends and was a DJ for the radio station at his school. His friend, Stephanie Paulus, would later tell People magazine, Every single time you were around him, you were laughing. He was always being silly, creating talent shows and dance moves. Joe graduated from Bremerton High in 2005 and was apparently just waiting to get his braces off before moving back to Los Angeles. Joe had a MySpace page, just like the rest of us, on which his screen name was McBad Dorkfish. According to E! Online, quote, his stated preferences are the Beatles, beer, and hot girls, spelled H-O-T-T-G-E-R-L-S. His favorite books he doesn't say. His favorite movies include Varsity Blues and Beethoven's Third and Beethoven's Fourth. End quote. While waiting to get his braces off, Joe worked a regular 9-to-5 job as a tech person for Nextel and another phone company, even though he'd gained access to his childhood movie earnings once he turned 18. He did go get his own apartment, but apparently visited home frequently. His friend Tracy Bourgeois told E! Online that he was very happy at this time. 
But soon, all of these parts, a happy, successful former child star and hopeful adult actor with a good job, his own place, and a loving, supportive family, wouldn't fit together. When on January 5th, 2006, Joe seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth. By January 9th, 2006, Joe's mother, Kathy, started getting pretty worried when she hadn't heard from her son in a few days. She would later tell People magazine, It wasn't like Joe not to check in with us every day. I thought he'd just gotten busy. So she sent Joe's brother, AJ, to Joe's apartment to check on him. Apparently, AJ found Joe's door unlocked and his lights on, but of course, no one was home. Later that day, Joe's silver Toyota Corolla was found parked behind a Mexican restaurant near the intersection of Wheaton Way and Sheridan Road. And, as Eon Line pointed out, a half mile from Port Madison Narrows, a tidal strait leading to the Puget Sound. AJ told People magazine he was filled with dread when he went to open the trunk of Joe's car, terrified of what he might find in there. But, thankfully, the trunk was empty. In the car, however, AJ reported finding a note that apparently expressed regret at not having been a stronger brother and stated that he wanted his belongings to go to his younger brother. There were also a few poems found in the car. The note has never been released to the public, but it has nevertheless become a furious point of debate online because, of course, it has. Joe's family filed a missing persons report and immediately started trying to put a timeline of Joe's last known whereabouts together. Here's what they and the media came up with. On January 4th, 2006, 18-year-old Joe went to a party at a friend's house and left in the early morning hours of the 5th, sometime between midnight and 4 a.m. His friend Nicole Typark would later tell People magazine that Joe seemed fine when he left. According to one source, Joe called a friend at approximately 4.15 a.m. According to a piece in the AP from January 17th of that year, Joe's mother Kathy said he'd called a friend at 4.30 a.m. and that friend had told Kathy that he and Joe had been drinking and writing poetry together earlier. Regardless of the 15-minute discrepancy, it's generally agreed that Joe recited a poem over the phone to a friend for them to write down. It's unclear if said friend ever shared the poem with police or Joe's family. It's unclear who the friend even was. Interestingly, though, by the time the story of Joe's disappearance made it to a website made with the help of Joe's parents, the story became that Joe was despondent when he made that phone call. An excerpt from the family website read, quote, Later on, Joe called one of those friends crying and upset and said he couldn't stop drinking and didn't know why. He asked the friend to stay up for the next hour because he was going to call him back. That call never came. End quote. This version of events didn't seem to appear in any of the immediate news coverage of Joe's disappearance. I've talked plenty of times before on this podcast about how memories can change over time or that people can forget important pieces of information in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy. But this does seem like a strange omission. I would imagine whoever Joe called that early morning on the 5th surely would have remembered that his friend couldn't stop crying, and that fact would have been noted in the early reports of the disappearance. 
It could be that over the time between the phone call and when the new version of events appeared on the website, someone might have asked his friend if Joe sounded upset, and it was one of those, you know, now that you mention it, he did seem kind of upset. But couldn't stop crying is a long way to travel from no mention of crying to begin with. Whatever Joe's emotional state had been during that phone call, he was now nowhere to be found. For some reason, even though it seems that Joe's family filed the missing persons report on the 9th, a search didn't begin for two more days. Apparently, over 150 people participated in that first search, but nothing came of it. A second search was conducted the following Saturday morning, the 14th of January. Unfortunately, again, not a single clue was found. On Sunday, Joe's family hung missing signs all over the Seattle area and went about trying to contact local media to get Joe's face and information out as far and wide as possible. Despite the fact that the last known contact with Joe had been around 4.30 a.m. on the 5th, more than a week earlier, Joe's family was confident that he was still alive. Though where they thought he might be, I don't know. Police, on the other hand, decided Joe had likely killed himself and pointed to the note found in the car. According to Kathy, a detective on the case said, I don't know how to say this to you without sounding really bad, but basically I think your son's dead and it could take months for him to show up in the water. But Kathy said the note didn't contain a goodbye. And even if the note seemed melodramatic, which of course is just speculation, the kid was an 18-year-old former child actor. Do you know how dramatic teenagers are in general? Add to that an artistic bend and you've got the potential for some pretty wild diary entries. If I went back and read my diary from when I was 18, not only would I literally die from embarrassment, but I would not be surprised if there were multiple references to wanting to die or how lonely slash depressed slash awful I felt. I'm sure there are pages of terrible poetry about the sweet release of death or whatever. I'm sure there are ridiculous song lyrics about how I would never find love or some other nonsense. This is what teenagers do. Their minds are constantly swirling with massive thoughts and feelings, and they know that if they share any of them with an adult, everyone will panic and put them on Ritalin or something. So they pour everything out into bad poetry, song lyrics, letters, and diary entries. Add to that that Joe had been drinking. Newsflash, alcohol is a depressant. So yeah, his writing was probably pretty dark and in retrospect, ominous. But if he were gonna go to the trouble of writing a suicide note, it would probably have been a little more explicit and yes, have included some sort of goodbye. That said, it is possible that his mind was so addled by dark thoughts that he couldn't think, let alone write coherently. But remember that his friend said he seemed perfectly fine and happy when he left the party. Plus, his mother said the note was buried under a bunch of other stuff in his car. Usually, when someone leaves a suicide note, they put it where people can find it. It didn't take long for news of the missing former child actor who'd worked with some of Hollywood's biggest names to go national. By this point, police said they were considering a wide variety of scenarios, but that they had pretty much ruled out foul play. 
Joe's family, on the other hand, weren't convinced. Kathy told a reporter with USA Today that police hadn't even processed Joe's car for fingerprints. She said, They sifted through it. They were in his apartment for about three minutes. They've done nothing. Detective Davis's response to this accusation was basically, I mean, I'm pretty sure we checked for prints, but uh, I don't have the report in front of me, so I can't say for sure. Yikes. Joe's family claimed the police gave them back Joe's car without properly processing it. Detective Davis again was like, yeah, but everyone liked Joe, so, you know, who would have wanted to hurt him? I don't know, man. A stranger, maybe? Someone who saw an opportunity? Though why that person wouldn't have stolen his car? Who knows? His sister Shauna told the Kitsap son, He's probably too embarrassed to come home. In the worst case scenario, if anything, it's foul play, but not suicide. But it doesn't seem like in any press conference his parents said anything like, we forgive you or don't be embarrassed or anything that might suggest something Joe might have had cause to be embarrassed about. Also, how embarrassed do you have to be to disappear in the middle of winter in Seattle? Joe's brother said the so-called note said he wanted to start over. I mean, again, what 18-year-old doesn't want to start over? And true, you haven't even really started when you're 18, but you hardly know that, do you? Anyway, despite the national attention, no useful leads came in. No real progress was made on the case, and news about Joe Pickler's disappearance pretty much stopped after January 20th only a little more than two weeks after he'd gone missing. As the months ticked by with no sign of Joe, his MySpace page became a landing point for friends to let Joe, or at least anyone visiting Joe's page, know how much they missed him. Many logged on on February 14th to wish him a happy 19th birthday or to post pictures. Whether they were hoping he would respond or were just finding a way to express their own grief is hard to say. His friend Tanya told E! Online, When I leave messages, it's not like I'm talking to a missing person. It's like he's still here. We all just want him to know he's loved and missed. And maybe he can find comfort in whatever situation he may be in. But Tanya wasn't 100% convinced, it seems, that Joe might have been in trouble at all. She said that if, for some reason, Joe had decided he didn't want to be found, he would find a way to disappear. He's someone who gets what he wants, and he's very intelligent, too. But it wasn't just Joe's friends who were logging on to his MySpace page. Detective Davis would also log on occasionally to see if, by any chance, Joe logged on from somewhere. Of course, if Joe was alive and didn't want to be found, the chances of him logging on to his MySpace page were slim. Unless somehow he didn't know that that would be watched or that he could be tracked that way. And considering he worked for a tech company, that's a hard scenario to accept. But as shown from his page, Joe hadn't logged on to his MySpace page since January 3rd. By late March of 2006, a rumor had gone around Joe's hometown of Bremerton that Joe had returned to Los Angeles. Police were quick to dismiss this rumor. It didn't make sense that Joe would leave suddenly with zero warning and apparently with zero belongings, including his car, in the pre-dawn hours of the morning to go back to L.A. 
Not only that, but on the missing Joe Pickler website put together with help of Joe's parents, it says that his asthma inhaler was found in his abandoned and locked car. He was apparently, quote, allergic to dust mites, cats, dogs, birds, and just about everything outdoors, end quote. That must have been some childhood, considering he grew up with dogs, cats, and birds. Incidentally, no one realized my sister was allergic to cats until years after living in a house with multiple cats who shed as though my mom was saving up to knit a carpet. Everyone was just like, huh, wonder why she's so stuffed up. Oh well, let's get another cat. And while police had first deemed Joe's disappearance a suicide, Detective Davis was now saying that didn't make sense either. The so-called note Joe left behind in his car, buried under a pile of stuff, was really just the musings and poetry of an 18-year-old kid. Sergeant Kevin Crane elaborated that the note didn't speak of Joe's state of mind. Davis also said police had found other documentation in the car, but apparently never revealed what that documentation was. On the six-month anniversary of Joe's disappearance, his family held a candlelight vigil in the hopes of keeping Joe in the public's thoughts. More than 100 locals gathered where Joe's car had been found, saying prayers for and telling stories about Joe. One friend told the Kitsap son that they just hoped Joe would return and say he'd been on vacation. His friend Cammy joked that if he did, they would all hug him and then punch him. And yes, absolutely, voluntarily disappearing from your life and the lives of everyone who loves you, only to return later and be like, JK, I was just chilling, would be a serious dick move. I would imagine the only thing worse than losing a loved one, whether to accidental death, murder, or suicide, would be losing someone and not knowing what happened to them or where they went. As we know by now, families of people who go missing generally never lose hope that their loved one will waltz back into their lives someday, and of course, that rarely happens. And even when it does happen, like in the case of Steven Stainer, who was abducted and held captive for seven years before finding his way back home, the trauma can make reintegration incredibly difficult. And I don't know of a single case of someone voluntarily disappearing and then reappearing years later only to be like, hey, I just needed a break. Meanwhile, their loved ones have lived out the years with trauma and unbearable grief, just so you could have a vacay, you know? But there was no activity at all on Joe's bank accounts, driver's license, or social security number. So the likelihood that he was just off chilling somewhere wasn't very good. Joe's older sister, Shauna, told the Kitsap son, People say it gets easier with time. I guess that's true when you know where the person is. Not only that, but while a lot of missing kids ended up on milk cartons and billboards, this missing kid had already been on television and in movie theaters all across the country. Anyone could walk into their local blockbuster and see his face on the box for Beethoven's third or fourth. This was not some anonymous kid. He'd worked with Robert De Niro. Incidentally, I couldn't find any information about any of the actors he worked with coming forward to offer reward money or publicity about his disappearance, which just seems weird. Like, Robert De Niro didn't want to maybe put up a reward out of his millions of dollars? 
The only celebrity mentions I could find of Joe were from the 2009 People magazine piece in which James Vanderbeek and Jesse Plemons sang his praises as a consummate professional. Listen, if I go missing and Mandy Patinkin or Christopher Walken or Jessica Lange don't make a huge deal out of it, I'm going to show back up just to let them know how disappointed I am in them. Anyway... By 2011, it seems local police had concluded that Joe Pickler was missing by choice because there was absolutely no evidence of foul play. Whether that meant he walked away from his life and was living it out somewhere else incognito or that he killed himself, they didn't elaborate. The Kitsap Sun reported, quote, after receiving a large amount of money from a trust account when he turned 18 in 2005, Pickler disappeared January 5th, 2006, and is still listed as missing. Police found no evidence of a crime and suspect he's missing by choice, end quote. It was definitely a choice to put his disappearance and the fact that he'd come into money in the same sentence. But again, there was no evidence that he'd either withdrawn a large sum of money before disappearing or that he'd touched the money after he went missing. So unless someone is leaving out a huge piece of the puzzle, the money is a red herring. That said, it is hard to imagine a scenario in which someone kidnapped and killed Joe. His car was locked. There were no signs of a struggle. And in all this time, no one has come forward to say they saw anything or know anything about his disappearance. But it's also hard to imagine he killed himself. There weren't any signs, though Lord knows people who seem perfectly happy kill themselves seemingly out of the blue all the time. But those people usually have some history of depression. A family member will usually reveal that the person had battled their demons or lived with a kind of darkness in them that seemed unreachable. This was not the case with Joe. Unless his family is withholding information, it doesn't sound like Joe ever had any demons or darkness to battle beyond the normal teen angst variety. So, I don't know. Let's say he did drink too much that night, though, again, someone would surely have noted that at the party and probably wouldn't have let him drive away. But okay, let's say, for the sake of argument, that maybe he got more drunk in his car after he left the party. Maybe he parked behind the Mexican restaurant and finished whatever bottle he had, took it with him as he left the car, because surely an empty liquor bottle in the car of a missing 18-year-old would have been mentioned somewhere in the reports, locked the car behind him and walked into the water? And somehow, for some reason, his body never surfaced? And sure, maybe the bottle did, but how many bottles wash up on shore every day? It's not like there would have been any usable evidence on the bottle anymore to tie it to him. Unless he was blackout drunk or so incredibly despondent and suicidal, I would have to think the frigid waters would have snapped him out of whatever hole his mind was in. Unless he jumped into the water from a bridge and was snapped out of it too late. Kathy, Joe's mom, was not having the narrative that Joe opted out of his life in Bremerton. In response to the 2011 Kitsap Sun piece, Kathy posted on a website for parents of missing children. My son, Joseph Pickler, went missing five and a half years ago. His case was handled so poorly by police and most of the evidence was lost. 
Their mistakes were because local police didn't know the correct procedures for missing children and persons. Since the disappearance of my son, my local law enforcement has learned to handle these cases much better. For that, I am very thankful. It helps find some purpose for my family's tragedy. Joseph is not a runaway. That's the only thing I know for sure about his disappearance. After nearly six years, we still have no resolution. Since Joseph's disappearance, my focus has been to help raise awareness of our nation's epidemic. I also struggle to get through each day without answers as to the whereabouts of my missing son. Our system is so very broken in so many ways. Through education and prevention, there is hope. I keep looking for purpose in my son's disappearance. The only way I found anything positive about my loss is when I help others live this nightmare. I do understand the suffering of other parents. Now I try to work for a better future so that the others aren't forced to wear these shoes. There isn't a ton of information about what exactly Joe's family think the police missed, aside from not fingerprinting the car. And again, we don't know if they didn't. It was just Detective Davis who was like, huh, what, who, where? According to Davis, Joe's file was two inches thick. What it consists of is anyone's guess. If there's one thing I've learned about missing persons cases, it's that rarely do family and loved ones think police have done enough. And I get it. If my loved one went missing, police could move mountains looking for them, and if they didn't find them, I too would probably think they hadn't done enough. I'm no missing persons investigator, but I don't know how much more police could have done in this case. With no witnesses and no body, there's not much of a trail to follow. All we really know is that Joe took off from a party in a good mood, called a friend, and may or may not have been despondent, and then he seemingly blooped out of existence. All his loved ones have of him are the boxes of photos and a handful of TV shows and movies, which is more than most people who have lost someone can say. I would imagine going back and watching those old movies is bittersweet. There's Joe, so much like he apparently was in real life. Laughing, crying, playing with his dog, and frozen in time. It seems the world may have missed out on the career of a really good actor. And far more tragically, Joe's family and friends will never get to see how his story played out. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. In the 1800s, the people of a tiny town in the mountains of Russia captured what they believed to be the Russian version of Bigfoot and kept her in a cage. Turns out the monster wasn't the one they put in the cage. The tragic legend of Zana the Almasti. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kai Burnett and Lauren Hooper. 
If you like our show, please do help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 